0: So how many of you guys have ever been part of a sports team? Anyone? Or or worked at a company where you had to wear a uniform? Or maybe you've been part of one of those family reunions where everyone wears a matching shirt and you get extra credit if by the end of the service you can identify whose family that actually is. But whether it's a uniform for work or a t-shirt for a reunion, these are all examples of external things that we intentionally do to identify ourselves with a specific group. And often we use these external identifiers as expressions of what we believe internally. External identifiers, we use them to send messages. They're used to tell other people something about ourselves and what we value Or believe. When I was in high school, the hippies would all wear tie-dye, and the jocks would wear their letter jackets, and the goths would wear all black. Their choice of clothing was intentional. It was meant to send a message about what they believed internally. On college campuses, we have fraternities and sororities that wear their letters as a symbol of belonging with a group, And we use bumper stickers on our cars to send messages to other people. In the triathlon world, where I happen to spend time, people use tattoos to send messages to other athletes about their accomplishments. These are all examples of external things that we use that identify ourselves as something bigger, bigger than our individual self. Ways we identify what we believe internally to an external world. And today, as we continue our journey to become one, one church with one purpose, that's exactly what we need to deal with. We need to deal with a question of identity. So as we continue our journey to one together, I invite you to stand once more with me, and we're going to read Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, together as one church body, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So let's review for just a minute what we've seen so far in our journey towards one. And what we've seen is that if we're going to maintain the unity of the Spirit— through the bond of peace, as the apostles called us to, if we're going to become one church with one purpose, then we must understand the what and the why, the how and the reason, the who and what our response is. And what we've seen so far is that what we must do is be completely humble and gentle and patient and loving with one another and with the community that's around us. And why we should do this is because we're part of one body. How do we actually do it? Well, we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit who is within us. And the reason we can do this is because of our one hope in the future glory we will have when Christ returns. And who makes it possible? Our one Lord, Jesus Christ. And what's our response? to the work of Christ on our behalf on the cross. Our response is to put our one faith in him and him alone. Our one faith or our justifying faith in the person of Christ, which is our conviction that God exists, that he is the creator and the ruler of all things. It's our conviction that our relationship with God was broken by our sin. And that God alone is the provider of eternal salvation through Christ. And these statements one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith are not in some random order. Paul's being very intentional, adding to the message piece by piece, building out this framework for unity that he calls us to follow and maintain. And our journey towards one has caused us to identify all sorts of things that we can put in front of the cross, and they become barriers to us getting to the cross. And over these weeks, we've been working to move them each, piece by piece, behind the cross so there's no more barrier. And now that we have all the things that can divide us behind the cross where they belong, we have a question to deal with a question of identification. If our one faith is in our one Lord, but our faith and our hope are really internal things, how do we externally identify our faith to each other and to the community that surrounds us? And this is the question that brings us to our next one statement. One, baptism. And what we'll see is that one baptism is the one statement that begins to bring together all of the other one statements. But how exactly does baptism bring unity? Because if we're honest, baptism is historically a pretty divisive topic. And yet here it is in this list of declarative things that the Apostle Paul says should bring unity to us as a church. So as a first step, let's take a look at what our statement of faith actually says about this topic. And our beliefs about baptism are part of our overall belief in theology about the church. I'm just going to read the second part of the statement that deals with baptism. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, These ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. And what we see is that Christ has given the church these two ordinances that are to be practiced by believers. Baptism, which we dove in depth into last week, not, sorry, the Lord's Supper, which we dove in depth to last week, and baptism, which we want to deal with today. We want to deal with the significance of baptism, but even more importantly, the significance of our one baptism And so the first thing we see is that these ordinances are mandated by Christ, and they were mandated by him in his, what we would call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, when he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the second thing that we see is that baptism is an expression of the gospel but it is not a means of salvation. There is no regenerating power in the act of baptism. And this actually divides us from Catholics and many other denominations, which believe that the act of baptism itself has power to forgive sins. But unlike communion, which we practice regularly together as a church body, baptism is something that each believer is called to do once, a single time, And while we don't believe baptism is a requirement or a rite of faith because this would contradict our one faith in the work of Christ alone, in the early church, the pattern is clear. It was both the custom and the practice of the church then, as it should be now, that believers, as soon as possible after expressing their faith in Christ, should be baptized to publicly proclaim that. Football season's over, you guys have some extra time this afternoon, so I encourage you, read through the book of Acts and see the pattern that repeats over and over from Pentecost to Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch to Paul's conversion to Lydia's conversion to the Philippian Jair and the Corinthian synagogue leader. They express their faith in Christ, and the next thing they do is they are baptized, So baptism is a symbol of faith, but it is not a means of faith. It's a command or it's an ordinance. It was the pattern, but it's not a requirement. But what about the mode or the method of baptism? Sprinkle, pour, dunk? The statement of faith is actually silent on that. But as a church, we are not silent on that. We have a distinctive practice about the mode of baptism. It says, Bethlehem Church baptizes by immersion individuals who confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We've added a distinctive practice regarding the mode. It's my personal theological view that this, in fact, is the greatest symbolism of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The greatest symbolism of that is found in baptism by immersion, which is what we practice here at Bethlehem. It's a distinctive, but you could also say it is divisive. Because baptism by immersion is a conviction. And any time we turn a conviction into a distinction, we choose to divide and not unite. And so now we're back to the original question. How exactly does one baptism bring unity When baptism historically, including how we practice it as a church, is a divisive topic. What we have to recognize is that when we quarrel over methods and meanings of baptism, we risk missing the primary principle of unity that the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to understand through one, baptism, Our baptism is a public declaration of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is a physical representation of the spiritual regeneration and cleansing that an individual undergoes internally when they first express their faith in Christ alone as their Savior, one faith in one Lord. But it's not the act or the method of the act that's important. Because we've already said that the act has no power whatsoever. Instead, one baptism is about what the act represents and signif- signifies. It's about what the act proclaims to the church and to the world around us. It's about the heart and the intention behind the act because baptism doesn't make you a Christian any more than wearing a ring makes you married. The act itself does not achieve anything, but that doesn't mean it's not important because it signifies something. It represents something critical. And what baptism signifies is what helps bring unity to the church So, what does one baptism represent and signify? Let's dig just a little bit deeper than the typical answer of washing away of sins, which is certainly true, but it's not enough to create unity. So, let's go back to Christ's Great Commission. It says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. And that word in is the Greek word ice, which means into or unto or towards something else. And so if you were to build it out, you would say, baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, baptize them towards Christ. Baptize them into the realm of Christ. Baptize them into the influence of Christ. But what does it mean to be baptized into Christ, baptized into the realm or influence of Christ? Well, to help us understand that concept, let's go back in time even further. Let's go back to the year 1926 B.C., when God makes his promise to Abram. He calls him out of Haran, and he says, I will make you into a great nation. That takes 215 years, four generations And it's gone from one person to 70 people. In Genesis 46, we see that those 70 people in 1711 BC went down to Egypt to escape a famine that had taken over the land of Canaan. 70 people. It's a big family. They probably would have looked cute in those reunion T-shirts. But it's not a nation. But while they're in Egypt... They flourish, but they also become slaves. They're an oppressed people, but they are a growing people. They are numerous, but they are not yet a nation. They were no more a nation than you would have considered the slaves in America a nation in the early 1800s. But then 430 years after God makes his promise to Abram, after he calls him and says, I will make you into a nation he steps back in, and he rescues his people from slavery, and he brings them out, over a million people, out of Egypt through the Red Sea and what the Bible calls the Exodus. And Paul recounts the story to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he writes, "'For I do not want you to be ignorant "'of the fact, brothers and sisters, "'that our ancestors were all under the cloud.'" And that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. And there's that phrase again. Baptized into. The Israelites were baptized into Moses which means they were baptized into the leadership of Moses. They were baptized into a new nation. As they walked through the Red Sea, they were separated from Egypt. Interesting that it was the Egyptians that were actually immersed by the sea, not the Israelites. They were separated from slavery. They were separated from their prior life. They were now the redeemed people of God. God intentionally calls them out to form them into something new, a new nation with new leadership, with new laws and a new identity and a new goal. And this is exactly what God has done with us through the work of Christ. He has called us out, called us out of our individual identities and given us a new identity in Christ. We are now a people. We are now a body. We now have a head, and that head is Christ. This is what our one baptism signifies. It's our public declaration that we now place our identity in the cross, that we now place our identity in Christ, our public declaration that we are now part of a body and that we now have a new purpose and that we now have a new goal. In 1 Peter, the apostle writes, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now You are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Baptism represents us being put into the realm of Christ. It represents us subjecting ourselves to the influence and the leadership of Christ. When we belong to the world, We served ourselves, but now we belong to Christ. We are identified publicly with Christ, and we serve Christ. When we are baptized, we are confessing Christ and announcing to the church and to the world that we are submitting to him. When we baptize people here at Bethlehem, we ask them to make five commitments We ask them, do you have the assurance that you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Do you commit yourself to following God's will and to serving Him? Do you commit to worshiping regularly with other believers through the local church? Do you commit to studying the Word of God and diligently applying it to your life? Do you dedicate yourself to living a godly life So that others will see Christ in you. This is our public identification with Christ. When the Israelites left Egypt, God formed them into a new nation with a new leader and with a new purpose. But when things got hard, they fought against their leader. They wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. And far too often, when things get hard for us, we fight against the leadership of Christ. When things get hard, we often revert back to serving ourselves instead of following Christ. But our one baptism signifies that we no longer belong to the realm of this world and its interests. We now belong to our one Lord, Jesus Christ. Our baptism is a public declaration to each other and to the world that we've moved from self-centered to Christ-centered, from being an individual to being part of a body. It's a public declaration, and it's also a public commitment. When I was in college, I wrote on the crew team, And when I went out for the crew team my freshman year, you start out as a bunch of individuals. They try you in different seats in the boat, they try you with different combinations of rowers. You wear what you want, you dress how you want. It's all about you. But once they find the right matches and they assign you a place, you're no longer an individual. You commit to being part of a body, part of working together, playing your role, following the leader, doing everything in perfect timing. When a crew boat works together, there's something called a pop, and it's audible. You hear it, and you think of a crew boat, if you've ever seen it, You go back on the seat and then you slide back forward. But when you get that pop, when everyone is working perfectly together, each person playing their roles, you don't actually ever slide back up because the boat pops and it slides under you. And that is when you move fast. And what you find out in the world of crew is that it's not the four or eight strongest individuals who make the boat go the fastest. It's the four or eight individuals who can work together the best. That is what makes the boat go fast. That is what makes the body effective. Our one baptism is both a public declaration and it's a public commitment. Our one baptism is both our identity and our calling. In Mark 8, Christ gives us our identity. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, we'll save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Our one baptism is a public declaration of our identity in the cross, but it's also our calling. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. We've been baptized and we are called to baptize. We have a role to play. We must take Christ to others so that they can also identify with Christ. And we must live lives that are consistent with our calling because our culture will look for the inconsistencies. If we say we are Christians, then are we living like Christ is our one Lord? It has to be more than what we say. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Just as a body, through one, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one Spirit to form one body. We were baptized into one body. Before, we were individuals, every one of us exercising our own will, every one of us self-centered and selfish. But now we are baptized into a new realm. Now we are baptized into Christ. Now we have a new body and we have a new head and we have a new purpose. Now we have given ourselves up to follow him. All of those who followed Moses through the Red Sea became one. And all of those who follow Christ become one human nature to continually divide, divide over all sorts of things. But once we are joined to Christ, we are now a new people with a new identity, and we are called to not divide but to unify. We are his people, and that should supersede all of our other identities. Christ is now our head. And our one baptism is a public proclamation of that. It's like joining the army. I've never been in the army, but I know many people who have. And when you join the army and you go to boot camp, they very intentionally strip you of everything that would identify you as an individual. And they build you into one body with one purpose still individuals with individual capabilities that are brought to the table, but you are unified with a purpose. So what identifies us as followers of Christ? What marks us as those who have placed our one faith in our one Lord? What are the external identifiers of what has happened internally in our lives? To answer that question, we actually need to work backwards through our verse. Our baptism is a public declaration of our response of one faith. And our response of one faith is in our one Lord. And that is the reason we can have one hope. And when we do that, we are given a spirit who will form us into one body. And he calls us to be completely humble and gentle and patient and loving. It is those actions that identify us. And what we see is we work all the way back to the beginning of the verse to what we must do. And these are the external identifiers. that make known what the work of Christ has internally done in our lives? Have you been baptized? Have you publicly identified yourself with Christ? If so, then the external markers of that should be humility and gentleness and patience and love. If the cross is our primary identity, then it should influence all of our other identities. This is why the order is so important because the cross must become the lens through which we understand everything else in our lives. We're no longer parents and coaches and teachers and workers and bosses and neighbors and athletes and students. And, oh, by the way, Christians, no. We are Christian parents, and we are Christian coaches. We are Christian teachers, and we are Christian workers. We are Christian bosses, and we are Christian neighbors. We are Christian athletes, and we are Christian students. Our identity in Christ should reorient the way that we look at the rest of life. It should reorient the way that we engage in every other aspect of our life. This is what happens when the cross becomes the lens through which we look at everything. It changes our perspective. It changes our behavior. It changes our actions and our interactions. Because of our one faith and our one Lord, we have one hope. And we can live as people who have hope and not people who are full of fear. And we are surrounded by a culture and a country who are full of fear. And we can live as agents of hope because of our one faith in our one Lord. Because of our one hope. Because of the one power of the one spirit that is within us. And we can be humble and we can be gentle. And we can be patient and we can be loving. This is how we reveal and we proclaim our identity in Christ. This is why we can go the extra mile to help someone else. This is why we can treat the customer better than we have to. This is why we can do our jobs with excellence. This is why we can find peace in the midst of stressful situations. This is why we can do random acts of kindness to others because of God's grace and kindness towards us. This is why we can assume the best in others. To recognize is that people don't listen to people they don't respect. And we will gain the respect of the culture around us when we live out the values of the Christ that we proclaim. If we want to be heard by our culture, then we must act in a manner that is worthy of being heard. In 1 Peter, the apostle writes, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is our one baptism. This is how we identify ourselves with our one Lord. This is how we maintain the unity of the body. And this is how we will reach our community with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to us, gracious beyond what we deserve. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his work on the cross. We pray that we would not be ashamed, that we would not be ashamed to proclaim publicly what Christ has done for us and that we would do that with gentleness and love, always pointing people towards you and that you would use that to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.